Awesome service last week, amen? Power in the resurrection. Can you feel it? And you know what? God's not done yet. There's always more that God calls us to do, right? Jesus spent 40 days following the resurrection, continuing to teach his disciples. So you know what? That means the resurrection is just the beginning. It's the very beginning for us. We come to know Christ because of the resurrection, and the next X number of years we have is God teaching us and training us, right? And I can't wait to see what God's going to do next. Sometimes it's scary, right? <laughs> what God's going to do next. Now, in that same vein, let's get back to our study in the book of Mark. Two weeks ago, we heard about the account of Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of blood, right? Jesus miraculously healed both of those, and it astonished everyone. In fact, the, the disciples were amazed at what they saw, even though he had been with him, seeing him do other miracles. But remember, Jesus also told them not to tell anybody about that. The time for his reveal hadn't happened yet. So now we pick it up at chapter 6. Starting in verse 1, it says, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? He's just the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any mighty miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Well, let's pray before we start. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray for your anointing as we talk about your word, as we preach and expound on what the Bible says. I pray that every word that I say is exactly what you want said and done. And I pray that every hear, ear is able to hear what your word says and allow it to apply it to our lives. So Father, this is your service we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I'm always amazed at the unbelief of people today who see miraculous signs in their own life. Unexplainable miracles. When they see the things that should appear as plain as day, they still don't get it. They're blinded. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the enemy of the world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the truth. And the, the, the biggest example I can see of that is when you see an ultrasound of a baby, there is no doubt to anyone who is thinking that that's not a baby, especially with the technology we have today. How do you not think that's a baby? Because their eyes are blinded. They do not have belief. But you know what? We shouldn't be surprised. Happened to Jesus. The central theme of the, this section of Mark is basically unbelief. The people saw and heard things that were or should have been as plain as day. And yet they didn't believe it. They saw Lazarus raised from the dead. Didn't believe it. In fact, they got angry. So let's look at this verse by verse. Verse 1 says, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. Now this isn't the first time that Jesus goes home. He was there before and he was rejected. 
and he got kicked out of the synagogue, and they tried to kill him the first time he was there. Luke 4.16 says, When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. Later on in Luke 4, it says, When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and took him to the edge of the hill on which the city was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he slipped away through the crowd and left them. Now, someone does that to me. I might not be going back to that town. But gracious Jesus always wanted to give a second chance to the people, especially the people in his own town. town. It reminds me of the verse we use all the time that we apply to that cross right there, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord isn't really being slow in his promise to return as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want any to perish, so he's giving more time for everyone to repent. He goes back to his hometown where he almost got killed the last time because he cared enough for the people he wanted to give them another opportunity to come to faith, to believe in him. Verse 2 goes on and says, The next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. They asked, Where did he get all the wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? And we mentioned earlier in the series that traveling rabbis and, and preachers and teachers were given the opportunity to preach on a Sunday morning or a Saturday morning in the Sabbath. And Jesus was taking opportunity there to teach in the local synagogue when he was in town. They kind of invited him in, like a guest preacher, let him, let him preach for a while. Now, this was probably the first time that the folks in Nazareth actually heard him teach. They acknowledged his wisdom. They had heard about him before he got there. They knew what he was doing. We had heard of all these things happening to him. But now we're actually hearing him teach. If he didn't do any miracles in the town, how did they know about Jesus before he even got there? Well, they heard about him. They heard through you know, testimony of other people. And we talked about this in our class this morning. Word gets out on who Jesus is. I don't think anybody in the U.S. Doesn't, hasn't heard the name Jesus. It's what they do with that name that counts. These guys had all heard about Jesus. They, did, they heard about all the miracles. The miracles, as we know, draws crowds in there. If you call a healing service, that place is packed. You call a prayer meeting, nobody comes. Miracles draw people in. So they had heard about all these things happening. All the miraculous does is get people's attention. Miracles in and of themselves don't save anybody and they don't convince anybody. All it does is allow Jesus and even us to give them the chance to hear the gospel and receive it. I said it last week, knowledge isn't our problem. And knowledge isn't even the answer. Just having knowledge doesn't change people's hearts or their life. How many know that? Just having information doesn't change you. It's what do you do with that information? How many pray for wisdom? Wisdom is the correct use of knowledge. You have knowledge. Wisdom allows you to apply that knowledge to do whatever God calls you to do. We used last week's analogy of cigarettes. What do you do with that knowledge? Wisdom says, according to the knowledge I have, I should quit smoking. But the knowledge doesn't make you quit. The wisdom about the knowledge that you have makes you quit. So what do you do with the knowledge you have about Jesus? 
These guys had all kinds of knowledge about Jesus. They knew where he's from. They knew his family. They knew they, he did miracles and stuff. They knew about him. The second time he's in town, they don't try to evict him or kill him. And the difference was they just didn't care. They didn't take him seriously. The world, for the most part, doesn't hate Jesus. They just don't care. They don't take him seriously. They may even give him credit for the good things that's happening. But that's about all they do. Because in the end, they don't want Jesus to change their life. They have knowledge, but not wisdom. Verse 3 goes on and says, He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And his sisters are right here and live right among us. Why didn't the people believe Jesus even with the evidences that they heard? Because they thought they really knew him. Hey, he grew up here. He's our neighbor for about 30 years. I, I know him. I knew him when he was five years old. I knew him when he was 10. I knew him when he was 20. That can't be him because I know him. If you ask most people what Jesus is like, what do you think they'll tell you? What do you think Jesus is like? They're going to answer you based on what they think Jesus should be like and what they believe that Jesus should be like. I think Jesus would be okay with abortion because he says this, you know, Jesus is love. Or I think Jesus would be okay with everyone and just love them the way they are and not ever have them change. You know why they say that? Because they think they know him. And they think that Jesus is just going to be like they want him to be. And these guys, they were, they were telling him everything he already knew. We know the miracles he did, the healings he did. We know his family. We know all this information about him. But we don't know him personally. Notice how they address the situation. They ask each other basically rhetorical questions. Verse 2 says, where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? So they acknowledge he's doing miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? Isn't he the carpenter? In other words, he is, isn't he the guy who's just like us, who works with his hands? What makes him so special and different from me? Then they insult him by asking if he's Mary's son. In Bible times, to honor someone, you always refer to them as their father's child. To acknowledge him as his mother's son would have been an insult. Sorry, moms. One commentary says that this may have been another slam against Jesus since rumor had it that Joseph wasn't his biological father or that he was conceived out of wedlock. In other words, since he's illegitimate, they're saying, oh, he's Mary's son. He's not Joseph's son. Now, the Bible also refers to his siblings. This would be his natural-born siblings. Not, they were not cousins. They weren't relatives. They were half-brothers and sisters. Other children whose mother was Mary. 
The teaching that Mary is a perpetual virgin is not a biblical position. Verse 3 goes on, they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Now the word offend means to stumble over him. And we get our word scandalize or scandal from the Greek form of this word. One commentator says, they could not explain him, so they rejected him. People don't reject Jesus for what they know. They reject Jesus for what they don't know. They can't explain Jesus away, so they just reject him out of hand. And for the most part, as we said earlier, they don't care. They don't take Jesus seriously. The Bible refers to Jesus also as being a stone of stumbling. Isaiah eight fourteen says, talking about Jesus, he will be a sanctuary, but for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And Romans 9.33 says, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The name of Jesus is what makes men stumble and fall today. Most people will acknowledge God. And that could be any God. But when you say that Jesus is the only way, the name of Jesus, that's what causes people to get upset. Because now you're, you're narrowing it down to one person. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must get saved. When you talk to people about Jesus and you ask them, is Jesus God, that's where it gets kind of edgy. That's where it gets into a problem. And people get offended today and refuse to believe it that Jesus is the only way. But again, as we said earlier, nothing is new under the sun. People have always said that, and people will always continue to say it. But as we read, Jesus declares himself, and the Bible talks about him being the only way. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and people. He is the man, Christ Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised that we see the same reaction of people today that Jesus saw back in his day. Then Jesus goes on to use a contemporary parable or a saying of that time. Mark 6, 4 says, And Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except his own hometown and among his relatives and his family. Now that's taken from a phrase that we know today as familiarity breeds contempt. How many have heard that one? You get so familiar with something, you build a contempt for it. Now, it's not always true. You, don't, you become familiar with people. You don't build a contempt for them. But that quote is credited to a dude named Publius, the Syrian, around 2 B.C. So what Jesus is doing is he's using something that would have been known to the people at the time as a parable. In fact, Aesop, how many have read Aesop's fables? Aesop wrote a parable around this, this quote. And Jesus modified a current quote to illustrate the same truth that the people thought they knew him but they discounted everything that would have been illogical to believe when you become so familiar with something I'll give an example I am not an electrician I'm not afraid of it 
but I have a healthy respect for it. If I ever get to the point where I become, I think I'm so familiar with something, guess what happens? I'm going to get zapped. When I'm not careful about doing things like that and I become so flippant, I've done it a thousand times, I'm going to keep doing it the same way. The minute I become flippant about something is the time I'm going to get hurt. And sometimes you get so familiar with something that ah, it's the second nature, I'm going to keep doing it the same way. That's when you get hurt. The minute you think you got it all under control is the minute you're going to blow it. The minute you think when you're driving, I can handle texting and driving. I've been driving for 40 years. I can do that. The minute you think you can do that is the minute you're going to fail. And the people were thinking, we know him so well. They became flippant about who Jesus was. So we can't believe anything he says. Another way to say that phrase is their minds were made up and Jesus wasn't going to change them. How many have heard the phrase, I've made up my mind, don't confuse me with the facts. And that can be said about so many things today. The people who knew you best before you were saved are the hardest ones to convince after you're saved because they knew who you were. They knew what you were like and they can't believe you can change so much so fast. How many of you got saved later in life and the people around you just couldn't believe what you're doing? Thought you were crazy. What happens is one of two things. Either get saved themselves or they quit hanging around you because you no longer do what you used to do and they don't like it anymore. Verse 5 goes on and says, And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any mighty miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Now, the verse doesn't actually mean that Jesus is incapable of doing miracles. It means that he chose not to exercise his power because of such an atmosphere of unbelief. If you're talking to someone and they keep rejecting, you finally say to the point, I'm not going to talk anymore. I'm not going to convince you because you're not listening to me. And so you stop talking, you stop trying to do something or helping someone. You ever try to help your kids with math homework? And you try to tell them what to do and they're not listening to you, not listening to you and say, okay, fine. I'm not going to help you anymore. I could do it, but I want, I'm not going to help you because you're not listening to me. That's what Jesus was doing. There's so much unbelief, he says, oh, oh, fine. If you don't believe it, I'm not going to do anything anymore because you won't believe it even if I do it. Doing more miracles here isn't going to change anyone's mind, so why bother? What's that tell you? What's the goal of the miraculous? Saving, bringing people to Christ. It's not the miracle itself. It's the opportunity to bring someone to Christ with you. Another emphasis of the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus performs miracles in response to faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, what is faith? As Gil read this morning, it's the confident assurance of what we hope is going to happen. It's the evidence of things that we cannot see. We all exercise faith in something every day. You exercise faith that the light switch is going to work. You exercise faith that your car is going to start. You exercise faith that your brakes are going to work when you're traveling down the road. You exercise faith and you are confidently sure that these things are going to happen. 
but it so, ha so happens all the time that it no longer requires faith because it's just a matter of fact. But what happens when those things don't work? Then we get all flustered, right? Lights don't go on, what's the problem? Car won't start, what's the problem? God wants to have the same kind of faith that we have that when the light switch turns on, it's gonna turn on. Now we don't walk in the building in the morning going, oh man, please, 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 turn on, turn on, turn on. Click. No, we don't do that. We are confidently assured that when we walk in and hit that switch, these lights are gonna turn on. That's the kind of faith that God wants us to have in his word and what he says. So we're not flustered when it doesn't work exactly the way we want it to. I shared this in the class this morning that maybe God doesn't answer your prayer the way you want it to. That should not squash your faith in what God says because God's word is still true. It may not happen exactly like you want it to happen, but it's gonna happen the way God wants it to happen. And the way God wants it to happen is always better than the way we want it to happen. Verse six in Hebrews 11 says, so you see it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that there is a God and that he rewards those who earnestly or sincerely seek him. Now, I'm gonna assume that most of you here, if not all of you, believe that there is a God. I'm not gonna ask for hands of those of you who don't. So do you believe that he rewards? When does he reward? He rewards when we seek, sincerely seek him by faith. We come to church because we believe that by faith, God is gonna show up. It, but if we, believe, if we come not believing that, guess what, he's not gonna show up, at least for you. It doesn't mean that God won't work in an unbelieving crowd for the one or two who trust believe. You can go to a church with a church full of unbelievers, but if you're the only believer, God can still work in your life. Look at verse five in Mark. It says, and because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any mighty miracles ex among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. It doesn't mean the whole crowd has to be full of faith. It means you have to be full of faith, regardless of what the crowd is. So that appears in a big crowd of Jesus' friends and family, all of whom did not believe, there were a few people that did. And again, God always has what? A remnant. How did Jesus feel when he went home? Verse six says, he was amazed at their unbelief. You ever try and talk to someone and explain what Christ means to you and what he did for you? And it sounds so logical and believable to you but they don't get it. With all the examples you might tell them, your own testimony about how God changed you, they still don't understand. And part of it is the people who don't believe don't have the Holy Spirit to help them to believe yet. That's where faith comes in. You have to believe that God rewards you with knowledge when you get saved. In other words, you have no knowledge about the Bible you know anything about anything other than the fact that, okay, I'm a sinner and the Bible says I need Jesus to forgive me. It's by faith you have to accept that and believe that God's gonna fill you in on the rest later. 
Now, you would think those who are closest to you would trust you and believe you. But a lot of times, it's just the opposite. Now, does Jesus stick around to try and keep persuading them? Nope. Verse 6 says, Then Jesus went out from, the, out from village to village teaching. Sometimes you have to leave those that are closest to you for God to work in their life on his own with other people. You'll find out later that Jesus' family, his brothers and sisters, got saved after he resurrected. They weren't saved when he was crucified. You pray that God sends other people to them that they would listen to. Matthew 9, 38 says, So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send out more workers for his fields. We've said this countless times. How many are praying for someone that you know and love and care about to come to Christ? Everybody. We all have people we're praying for. That cross is full of names that we're praying for. For people to come to know Christ. Maybe you're, you're praying for someone who lives miles and miles away. You're praying for God to send someone else to them to share the gospel. Because they're not listening to me. Send somebody else. On the flip side of that, you might be the answer to somebody else's prayer. Somebody in California is praying for somebody in Pennsylvania to go to minister to their relative. And maybe that's you or me. Maybe God puts you in a path of someone that you don't know but somebody else is praying for that God sent someone to them. You might be the worker that someone is praying God sends to their friend or family. We continue to pray for the miraculous to happen in our church and in our families, but remember all those things we pray for are only beneficial if people come to know Christ. Jesus saw the unbelief of his own hometown as well as the desperate need of people in other places. The same account in Matthew's version says this in verse 35 out of 9. Jesus traveled through all the cities and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And wherever he went, he healed people of every sort of disease and illness. He felt great pity for the crowds that came because their problems were so great and they didn't know where to go for help. They were like sheep without a shepherd. You ever wonder why you look at missionary work in, in difficult countries that they seem to have tremendous response to the gospel. People, you know, all the time coming up knowing Christ, accepting Christ and getting saved. And it's sometimes it's so hard in the U.S. Years ago, we had uh, somebody come to our church who was a missionary from her country who came to America to be a missionary here because our people needed it so badly. We have everything going for us, regardless of all the stuff that's going on in the world. We still are the blessed, most blessed country in the world. And because of that blessing, we don't really, quote, need anything. But in Jesus' time, and in these other countries, the Bible says here, they were, had nowhere to go for help. Their need was so great. I, was, I, was, I forget what I was watching the other day. If, I mean, people living in squalor in different parts of the world. And the things that we throw away, they would eat. So, of course, Jesus saw their need and God's going to work in that area. And sometimes we get so familiar with the, 
with Jesus and church and all that. You see, every, you can't turn a channel without seeing a preacher on TV or a radio station. They're all, they're everywhere. And you become so accustomed to that that it doesn't mean anything to you anymore. We have to get to the point where we have to understand that not only us, but everybody, we are like sheep without a shepherd and we need Jesus to meet those needs in our life. He says, their problems were so great and sometimes it takes us to get to the point where our problems are so great that we need Jesus. And that's why we pray for those, Lord, whatever you need to do. Because sometimes it may take a problem so great to get their attention. So next week we're going to talk about and see Jesus meeting as many needs as possible. And what happens is now that he's beginning to meet needs and people are getting saved and healed, there's only one of him. And now he's, beginning, he's going to send the disciples out to minister with power and authority. So there's going to be 13 of them now going around healing people. So I was finishing this the other day and I thought, okay, what's the takeaway from all this? What's the one main thought that we should leave with? Because I know you're not going to remember anything that I said unless God puts it in your mind. One commentary says it this way. I'll close with this. Now, before we leave, we have an important announcement to make after we pray. So everybody hang out for a minute. Commentary says it this way. Just as a lack of faith hindered the working of miracles in Jesus' hometown, so unbelief in the church still gets in the way of the powerful things Christ wants to do today. Failing to accept what the Bible says is true, rejecting God's standards of right and wrong, Failing to believe that the Holy Spirit still operates today and that God still desires to work the miraculous, all of those will hinder God's power in church. So when we pray, we say, do you come expecting? I mean, do we really come expecting God to work? Or do we just come, yeah, I'm expecting. If he doesn't work, no big deal. No, we should come with the anticipation that God is going to move however he wants to move. That's the faith that we have to come with. And the, we said before, God's a rewarder of those who seek him. So when we come on Sunday morning, we should all of us come prayed up. What, God, are you going to do today? Are you going to use me today? Maybe God's going to use you in the gifts of the Spirit. Maybe God's going to work through you to minister to somebody else in a class or in the hallway. God, let me be open to what you want to do. We always pray, Lord, let me be sensitive to the Spirit. Lord, let me be sensitive to what you want to say. Maybe I'm supposed to go talk to that person. And maybe what I say to them is what God wants to say to them. It's impossible to please God without faith. And we walk into this building, we believe that God's going to show up. This is not just a building, right? It's a place where God meets. And when we walk in, everyone who's a believer has the Spirit of God in them. So we all walk in with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2, when the Bible says that the Holy Spirit filled the room first before he filled the people. So we're praying that God fills this room and fills the people and that God is going to work whatever that means in each life. God, I believe God is going to do that. Amen? Amen. Would you say as we close in prayer and again hang out for a moment afterwards? Hallelujah. Maybe you're here this morning and this is maybe your first time in this church or like me, you've been in church for a long time but never really came to faith. He never really trusted Jesus. You liked it or 
You came because someone dragged you here. But in either case, you're here because God wants you to be here. The Bible says that God is sovereign. He rules and overrules. So if you're here, it's because God brought you here. You may think your spouse brought you here, but God brought you here. Because God wants you to make a decision. The Bible says we're all sinners. We all fall short of what God's expectation of us is. And the Bible also says the wages for those sins, the penalty for that is death. That means when we die, we're going to be separated from God for eternity. But the Bible also says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And the Bible also says as many as receive him, did he give the authority or the right to be called children of God. It's not, so it's not just everybody in the world is going to get saved. The Bible says as many as receive him. You receive the truth. The truth is Jesus died in your place. But if you don't believe that, then you're going to go on living the way you live and separated from God for eternity. But the gift is here, ready for you to receive it. So if you're here and you've never really accepted Christ in your life and you, you're not even sure what that means, trust me, when you make that choice out of faith, and a conscious decision to choose to follow Christ, God will open up that part of your brain that understands. So if that's you, I want to pray with you. Would you raise your hand? I'm going to know who you are so I can pray and lead you into God's presence. All right, I'm going to be convinced that all of us are committed followers of Christ. So Father, we thank you that however you got our attention, whatever miracles you did to alert us to the truth of the gospel, we're thankful that you drew us in. We're thankful to be part of your family. We're thankful that our sins are forgiven and that you chose us. You love us enough to choose us. And you did it even before we wanted to know you. So Father, I pray that you would continue to fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit continue to renew each one of our minds, revive us, allow us to really sense your presence every day, and not just sense it, but respond in kind. It's great to be filled with the Spirit, but what are we going to do with that? Help us to be used by you in the marketplace, in the world today. The Bible says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Lord, help us to be Again, sensitive to your spirit when we're out and about to people who may need to hear about you. Give us the words to say and allow our lives to matter in the kingdom of God when other people come to know you. So Lord, I commit each person to you. Bless them as we leave this morning in a moment and allow them to experience your presence not only in church, but every day during the devotional life, through work, wherever they are, Lord, let them feel that you're with them and let them receive your promises. And we will thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 Me, be seated for a moment, if you would.